Did you bring a Bible with you tonight? I want to go together to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Excited about this? I believe the Lord's got something good for us. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 12. This is familiar to you. What does he say in verse 12? Fight. We just lost a bunch of people right there. <laughs> right there. Fight. I don't want to fight, but he said fight. We're in a fight, and a lot of people don't even realize they're in a fight. But every one of us, we are engaged right now in a fight. He said, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called. Eternal life is your calling. You meet a lot of people who wonder what their calling is, who want to know what their calling is. What's my purpose? What am I here for? What did God create me to do? What is my calling? And I would suggest to you, you start with scriptures that say to you, this is your calling. Start there. That's a great place to start. This is your calling. You are called to this kind of life. When Jesus gathered the disciples to him, this is before he sent them out. They came to him as disciples and he sent them out as apostles. But before he sent them out, the scripture says he called the 12 to himself. There's another part of your calling. You are called to Jesus. And whatever the calling is after that, you'll never know what that is until you know, first of all, you are called to Jesus. That's your calling. You're called to him. You're called to fellowship with him. You're called to know him and let him know you. That is your calling. You are called to him. You're called, Paul said in Timothy, to eternal life and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Look again at the first part of the verse. Fight, he said, the good fight of faith. I want you to see this out of the Weist translation. I think they have that. We'll put it up here. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 in the Weist translation. Look at this first part. Be constantly engaging in the contest of faith. I just like that. Be constantly, he said, engaging in the contest of faith. Your faith ought to be on something all the time. Always. Not something you turn on and turn off. Something that is just always on. Engaged in this contest of faith at all times. Now, if you have any kind of ongoing relationship with the Lord then you are in faith. And that's what the gift of faith was given to you for. And we've made a big deal, and rightly so, about faith being how we obtain and faith is how we receive, and absolutely it is. But the number one reason God gave man this measure and this gift of faith, he said, I gotta give you some way to get to me. Without this, you can't get to me. And I can't get to you. Oh, come on. Did you hear that? Without that gift of faith and operation in your life, you can't get to God, but he can't get to you. That's huge. So if you've got any kind of relationship, any kind of ongoing fellowship with God, then you know faith is at work. But, but he's specifically talking here about the fighting side of it. You're not fighting in your relationship with God. So he's He's referring to something that you and I are to be constantly, he said, engaged in the contest of faith. All the time. All the time. 
Your faith should be on something, for something, working on something all the time. You know, I think this is one of the reasons Jesus said it's so hard to get a rich man into the kingdom. Because that guy looks around and based on how everything looks, what do I need faith in God for? But he didn't say it was impossible, did he? He said all things are possible. Man, if you can get a rich man with faith in God, a rich man who knows that even how much he has is little compared to how much God can do, that's awesome. But you and I, we ought to be constantly engaged in what he called the contest of faith. Our faith on something, working on something all the time. Listen to this. It goes on in the Weiss translation. Be constantly engaging in the contest of faith, which contest is marked by its beauty of technique. Be constantly engaging in the contest of faith, which contest is marked by its beauty of technique. So when Paul wrote to Timothy and said, fight the good fight of faith, that's what he was saying. We've read that scripture and said, well, it's a good fight because we win. And that's true. It is a good fight because Jesus has won it. And with faith in him, we win it. But notice what he's saying to him here. The word good there is referring to the way he fights the fight of faith. It's a fight that should be marked. It's a contest which should be marked. What's that mean? Should be characterized, should be able to describe it this way, by the beauty of its technique. Have you ever stopped to thought, to think about the technique involved in the fight of faith? I have a feeling that this may be why many people are having what others call faith Failures. They're trying things. They're things that look like faith. They're things that sound like faith. But without any technique to it, it's not a good fight. It's not a good fight. We don't take, take time to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talked about this in some other words. I think it was in verse 24. He talked about how he said, he said, don't you know that everyone who runs, they're all running, but one runs. Look at this to receive the prize. Only one will receive the prize. What did he say? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. In other words, you winning the race has everything to do with the way you run it. It's not just about running. Everybody's running. It's not just about you running. It's not just about you being in the race. That's great. But to win it, I said to win it, it's dependent upon the way you run it. Skip down a couple of verses. I think it's to verse 26. What does that say? Therefore, I run thus. I like that. I run thus. This is what Paul said. I run thus. Or in other words, this is how I run. This is how I roll, Paul said. This is how I run, not with uncertainty. This is what describes and marks and characterizes his race because he's after the prize. He says, I'm not running with uncertainty. Well, if you're not running with uncertainty, then that means you know why you're running. 
You know where you're running to. You know to whom you are running. You know what you are running for. You know where the goal is. You know what the prize is. There is certainty in the way you are running this race. And when you run it with certainty, you win the prize. Why? Because of how much that contrasts to everybody else in the race. You notice that before people have no idea what they're here for. I'm in the race, but I don't know why. I'm running. I'm running. Why are you running? I don't know. I saw you running. I just thought we were supposed to run. What are you running for? I don't know. I wish somebody would tell me. What are you running to? I don't know. And folks that, that set their own goals and set their own prizes, and they set those goals apart from their creator, as opposed to letting their creator set the goal and set the prize, they've set it on their own, and maybe the goal is a dollar amount, or maybe the goal is a station in life, or maybe the goal is square footage, or all these types of things. If or when they actually do get that, there's no satisfaction in it. None. And then they think, well, I got it, now what? It's back to uncertainty. Paul said, if you're going to win the race, you're going to have to know why you're running it. You're going to have to run it with certainty. Just in the last few years, last few months, really, this has become so, so much more precious and so much more clear to us and our ministry. We got to know what we're doing. We got to know why we're doing it. These decisions we're making. And because, man, when we step out there, there's no looking back. And Sarah and I, over a couple of things, decisions we've made in the past, we've, we've had to say to each other, mostly after a good, you know, kick in the pants after sitting in here on a service or two, we're not going to question that anymore. We're not going to go back and forth on that anymore. Because we found ourselves doing that at one time or another, just, oh, did we do the right thing? What's the right thing to do? What are we doing? Where are we going? Go back to what you know. Go back to who put you in the race to begin with. Go back and get some technique about you. Put that back up there, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What did he say from there? I think Paul was kind of a sports guy. All his analogies are sports. Have you found that? I'm actually thankful there are women preachers now. Because I think if there weren't, we would just have nothing but sports analogies. We, we need something other than that. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight. So now he's playing a different sport. This is how I fight. What did he tell Timothy? Fight the good fight. I fight not as one who beats the air. Not as one who beats the air. Now, I'm going to tell you this about myself, and I don't say it with any sense of pride whatsoever, whatsoever. I've never been in a fight. I managed to get all the way through elementary, junior high, high school. I managed to get all the way through that and never got in a fight. Uh, there was one kid one time who I was hitting in the head with a balloon in school, and he said, if you do that again, I'm going to punch you. So I did it again. And he just charged me, but I was so afraid of getting in trouble that I just threw my hands up in the air and said, I'm not fighting, I'm not fighting, I'm not fighting, I'm not fighting. I, I wish I could stand here with cool stories like, you know, me and my, or my, my dad put me and my brother in martial arts when I was <laughs> 10 years old. Getting, getting beat up on the bus. My, my dad said, boys, we got to do something about that. 
I wish I could tell you that I went to the old school. <laughs> Concrete floors, no pads. <laughs> I wish I could tell you I had one of those instructors that would give you the opportunity to get it right once or twice, but if you didn't get it right, he'd sweep your leg and you'd fall on the concrete floor. But I didn't have a brother and my dad and I played piano a lot, so I didn't, I didn't have that story. It's a good story though, isn't it? I could tell it somewhere else. I couldn't tell it here, but I could tell it somewhere else and say it were my own. But, but I never got in a fight. The only, the only fight I ever really got in was the, you know, the fake one where you practice fellas in the mirror. I think, you talking to me? <laughs> you know, you play through it. In case you ever do come into a situation like this, you, you talking to me? I don't like your tone, right? <laughs> but here's, here's the problem with all this. You can tell I never got in a fight, right? Here's the problem. I'm not actually hitting anything. What am I doing? Beating the air. Beating the air. And I think if I ever did get in a fight, it would look more just like arms flailing and hoping at some point something lands, you know what I mean? The problem with beating the air is that you never make impact. You never make contact. That's a big problem with that. The problem with beating the air is that you never actually do anything to your opponent. You never have an impact and you never make an impact. And Paul said, that's not how I fight. This apparent athlete, that's not how I run and that's not how I fight. I don't fight as one who beats the air. I don't swing and miss. You could look it up in the Weiss translation. He says, he says it a lot like that. He said, I don't swing and miss, but I strike a blow. But I think a lot of folks in their faith walk, if you were to somehow uh, personify or, or somehow uh, embody their fight of faith, it, it might look more like this. What happens? You know, they, they get some symptoms and what do they start doing? Just start... Throwing this scripture and throwing that one and, um, okay, what, what, what do we do? Um, oh, we'll write a check to him and, and send it to that ministry and, 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 and send another one to over there and, and, and by his stripes I'm healed. And, and, and by These are good things. These are good verses. You know I'm not telling you not to sow. You know, you know I'm not saying any of that. But what I'm telling you is there's some technique to this thing. There is some technique for you and I to grow in and develop in. And that technique is what will make this a good fight. That's what's going to make you a good fighter. Anybody interested in being a good fighter of faith? I, I, I may have never gotten in a real physical fight, but I would definitely like to be considered heavyweight faith fighter. I want to be that. But it's going to be a fight that's marked by the beauty of its technique. Marked by the beauty of, ex, of its technique. I like the way he says that. Um, you're here in 1 Timothy. Go over to, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Last year, our son, Justice, who I told you is six now, 
he was five and when he started playing soccer. And so we would go out to these soccer games, we'd take him to practices and go to the games. You know, I never once walked away from one of those games and said, wow, that was a good game. So that was a cute game. That was a fun game. That was an entertaining game. But you know what? At five years old, it's not a good game. It's not. Nobody's good at it. It's not good. What makes it good, what makes the game good, what makes the fight good is when you've got people out there who know what they're doing. That's a good game. That's a good game. Now, I don't want this to be depressing to you, but your enemy knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. That's why the scripture says, don't be ignorant of what he's doing. Look at uh, chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. Look in verse 20. In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Sanctified and useful for the master. Somebody say useful. Sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. I like the modern English version of this. It says that you will be sanctified and fit for the master's use. Fit for his use. Just a few months ago, Sarah and I went away on vacation, get a, got some time away together. I woke up early one morning and was sitting out on the balcony of the hotel Beautiful view, looking out over the pool, the palm trees, the ocean in the distance. It was early in the morning. I'm sitting out there with my Bible, and this is where the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord was leading me. And I'm looking at this verse, and I'm going over it. And I found it there where he said that he wanted me to be fit for the Master's use. And these words came up in my spirit. He said, Jeremy, I want you fit by 40. I'm turning 37 later this month. And the Lord set a goal out in front of me. He said, I want you fit by 40. It's exciting to me. I've never really been one of those guys who had these great big long-term goals. I know it's a good thing to have, but I've never really, I I couldn't tell you the 10-year plan. You know, you get that question a lot, especially when you're younger. What's the five-year plan, the 10-year plan? My answer was always, look, I want to be doing in 10 years the same thing I'm doing right, right now, just multiplied times 10 years. Because if I'm not doing something then that at least resembles what I'm doing now, then I'm wasting time right now. But this was really one of the first times the Lord ever set something out in front of me like that and said, I want you fit by 40. Now, of course, you could think of that in natural terms, fitness. You could think about working out. And and I work out, obviously. You knew that. Um, (laughs) but, But you know this. When the Lord starts talking to you about these kinds of things, he's never talking to you about change from the outside in. What's he talking about? Inside out. Change from the inside out. He said, I want you fit by 40. And the more I've thought about that, the more I've meditated on it, and the more I've realized this is two things. This is both a very exciting word, but it's also a word of warning to me. It's okay if I'm a little bit transparent with you tonight. It's an exciting word because 
Because I see that word fit also is translated here useful. I think the King James says meek. Useful for the master. Fit for the master's use. I want to be useful to him. I want to be useful to him. I want him to be able to use me for something. Anybody else with me on that? You want to be used? Absolutely we want to be used. I want to be useful to him. And it's exciting to me when he says that to me because I realize there's something coming. It gets me excited about 40. It gets me excited about that decade because I realize, again, remember what we said earlier? He's always got the future on his mind. He's looking at something coming down the road at me that's going to be here in a very short amount of time. And it's something exciting. It's something that's increased for me and our family and our ministry. And I get excited about it. But right on the other hand, here's this word of warning. I want you fit by then. What's that mean? You're not ready for it right now. You're not ready for it right now. In other words, if it were to come right now, I couldn't use you. I don't know about you, but that just makes me shudder a little bit. It makes me shiver a little bit to think that I could hear those words from Jesus. Jeremy, I love you, but I can't use you. Not in the shape you're in. I never want to hear it. God forbid I ever hear that. The truth is he does love us. And there's nothing you can do to change it. You didn't buy it to begin with. You didn't earn it to begin with. He just gave it to you. And he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And you can't change that. But just because he loves you doesn't necessarily mean he can use you. I want him to be able to use me. What does he say here? Fit for the master's use. And prepared for every good work. Just at the first of this month, we celebrated six years in our own ministry, and we sat down with our staff and our interns, most of or some of whom are here tonight, and we had Vision Week, celebrating the anniversary of the mission uh, of the ministry. We had Vision Week. We took a day to talk about where we've been. We took a day to talk about where we are, and we took another day to talk about where we're going. And this is what I ministered to them out of. This is what the Lord is instructing us. We are to be fit for his use and prepared for the work. That's what our life and our ministry is about from this day forward. Being in shape and ready to go. That's what prepared means. You were made ready beforehand. And when the door got open, you stepped through it. We had some things in, in our ministry this year. Some good things happened, but the Lord, they were new to us. And the, and, and the Lord had to speak to me regarding some of it and give me some good stern correction regarding some of it. Some of which were opportunities that he made available to us. But it was months that went by before we were able to step through that door he had opened. And I have resolved that to never again am I going to stand and look at an open door that he opened without being able to go through it. I'm going to be fit and I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be fit for the fight of faith. That's what we're talking about tonight. Being fit for the fight. Are you with me so far? Somebody say useful. I want to be useful to him. You might think to yourself, you know, that that's pretty harsh to think that Jesus would tell you you weren't useful. That, I can't, that he couldn't use you. But there are places in Scripture and people that he told, I can't use you. 
In the book of Luke, chapter 9, let me read this to you. Jesus said to one, follow me. But he said, Lord, let, watch this, me first go and bury my father. In other words, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I want to do that. But first, what do he say? Me first. Let me first. You see those words in there? Me first. Let me first go do this. If you know anything about Jesus, if you know anything about the word, it is not me first, is it? It's kingdom first. Kingdom first. Let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And others also said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is what? Fit. You're not fit for the kingdom. Now, here's what's startling about this. You know the Lord loves him. But not only did the Lord Jesus love him, he called him. Did he not say, come follow me? There's your first calling right there. Called to Jesus. But this individual, whoever it was, or multiple ones, we don't know. These guys got that ultra rare eye to eye, face to face invitation out of the mouth of Jesus himself. You, come here. You come follow me. Come here. Come, Come get in with these guys right here. And what the guy say? Yes, that's great. But what I got to do first is go back. Let me go say bye to some folks first. And Jesus said, you're not fit. If you're not prepared, you're not fit. Now, the good news is you can get fit and you can get ready. But I've already had enough correction on that, I think, for a lifetime. And I have resolved from this day forward, I will be in shape and ready to go. Every time I hear his voice, every time that door of opportunity opens, every time I get instruction from him, in shape and ready to go. Man, you like that? I like that. In shape and ready to go, fit for the fight of faith. Let's keep going in this. Go to uh, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. You may also remember when uh, Jesus told the parable about that, that boss who called the three guys to him and he divided up all his money. Remember that? And he went out of town and he told these guys what to do with it. And he had one that he gave five talents to, another that he gave two, and to one he gave one. And the guy with five talents, you remember all this, he went and traded and he gained five more. The guy with two went and traded, he gained two more. The guy with one, you know what he did. He buried it, right? Well, then boss man comes home and he's going to settle accounts with everybody. The guy who got five came in. He said, Lord, you gave me five. I went and traded. Now I've got five more. And man, his boss just threw a party. Wouldn't you love to work for that guy? There's so many people just in thankless jobs. And no matter what you get right, no matter what you do right, it just seems like there's nothing but criticism or somebody else there to take the the credit. But this boss, this guy celebrated him. Well done, he said. Good job, you good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in the little things. In the little things, I'm going to make you ruler over much. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This is a great guy to work for. 
The second guy comes. Lord, you gave me two. I traded. I got two more. Here they are. He said, good job. Way to go. Good and faithful servant. Notice he said good. What did Paul tell Timothy? Fight the good fight. One marked by its beauty of technique. If you look this word up good in Matthew 25, you know what it means? Useful. What's his boss saying? I can use you. I can use you around here. As a matter of fact, I could use a couple of you. <laughs> useful. Well done. Good. Useful servant. You've been faithful in this. I'm going to make you ruler over more. And that third guy comes in with the one. And what did he say? He said, uh, Lord, I knew you to be a hard and harsh man. Now, does that stack up with what we just found out about this boss? Does that sound like a hard and a harsh man? Well done, way to go, party, promotion, raise. So this guy's got some bad information. He's got some bad information about who he's working for. I just knew. You ever just known something about somebody for years and years and years? You just knew that about them? You just knew they were that way? You just knew that they were like that and then you actually met them? <laughs> right. You're not a jerk. <laughs> I knew you, he said, to be a hard and harsh man. And this is what he said. Notice this. And this is important for where we're going tonight. He said, and I was afraid. Bad information about God makes you afraid of God. And that's what people are living with, is bad, wrong information about our good God. And they're afraid of him. They're afraid of him. He said, I was afraid. And so what I did was I took and I buried it and I hid it and then I dug it up. So here it is. And the other two guys he called good and faithful. You know what he said to this one? Wicked and lazy. Everybody got called two things. Good and faithful, wicked and lazy. Lazy, I get it. Because the whole thing started when Jesus said he gave to each one according to their ability. So evidently, his boss, or God in this parable, saw something in this guy that he didn't see in himself. And he didn't do what his boss knew he was capable of doing. It's laziness. What is that? Not prepared. Not in shape. Not ready to go. Why wicked? Why would he call him wicked? That goes back to believing something wrong about God. That's wicked. Is it not wicked to call our good God hard and harsh? Wicked and lazy. And you know what Jesus said that the boss's response was to this? It's Matthew 25, verse 30. He said, take the one from him Give it to the one with five, and the unprofitable servant cast him out. You fired him. You fired him right there on the spot. Why? Because he was unprofitable. Do you see the little word in there, fit? Unprofitable. If you were to look up unprofitable, you know what it means? Useless. So you've got useful and useless. I know this is heavy, but you're the one who gets to decide 
what you are. It's not him. It's not him. You get to decide. What did Paul write to Timothy? If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be useful. You and I are the ones that decide, are we useful or are we useless? I know that's hard. I know that sounds intense, but look, we got scripture for it. Jesus said, the one who's unprofitable, I can't use you. I can't, you are of no use. I love you. I love you and I died for you just the same way I died for everybody else, but I can't use you. Somebody say, not me. I am so serious about this. I do not ever again in my life want to be caught in that condition. Unfit, out of shape, and not prepared. Look at Romans chapter 4. You still with me so far? Romans chapter 4 is an amazing chapter in Scripture. I heard one guy say, I don't do drugs, I do Romans 4. (laughs) And he's just about right. It is the New Testament synopsis, the New Testament account of this Old Testament guy, Abraham. And it's everything we learned from Abraham. If you just look in verse 1, we won't read all this. I wish we could, but for time we won't. Verse 1 says, What shall we say that Abraham, our father, is found according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you earned your salvation, then it's no longer grace. God owed it to you. Now, let me see by a quick show of hands, who in here would raise your hand and say, God came to you one day, knocked on your door and said, wow, you're good. I owe you some salvation. Anybody? Show of hands. Ushers, help me. Do we have any hands? No, we have no hands. Why? Because you didn't earn it. You couldn't earn it. There was nothing you could do to earn it. It was a gift. It was a gift called grace and it had to be taken by faith. You didn't earn it. You couldn't earn it. And it wasn't debt. God didn't owe you. God didn't owe you anything, but he gave you everything. That's good, right? God didn't owe you anything, but he gave you How much? Everything. Everything. So if you were to keep reading about Abraham, skip to verse 13. Look at what it says. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You ever stopped and wondered why Abraham is such such a central figure, even in the communication of what's just taken place in the New Testament? Why is Paul having to use this Old Testament guy to preach what's just happened in the New Testament? You ever wonder about that? I think the answer is right here in verse 13. He says, he says that there, read it again. What did he say? The, the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul's writing to people saying, I got to somehow communicate to you and get over to you what's just happened in and through Jesus. And the only way I know to do that is to take you back to a time when there was nothing between God and man but faith. There was no law. 
That law didn't show up for a long time after that. And the people he's preaching to lived generation after generation after generation under the heavy weight and burden of that law, trying to measure up to it, trying to get to God through it. But there was no way because in and of themselves, there was no strength to do it. So Paul's like, okay, okay, what do I got to do here? I got to take you back in time before that thing ever existed. And there was nothing between you and God but faith. There was no sin between you. There was no law between God and His man. There was no distance between them. God just spoke to His man and His man was like, okay. God just spoke to this man and gave him command. And what did Abraham do? Okay. What he say over and over and over. Now, again, we're reading the synopsis here. Go back to Genesis sometime and look at everything Abraham said okay to. Look at everything Abraham believed God in. I mean, it started in chapter 12. He's 70 years old and God says, get out of your father's house. Which, if we're honest, it was time. <laughs> you know, I mean... You got to spread your wings at some point, right? <laughs> Kick the birdie out of the nest. 70 years old, living at home with dad. Son, come on, get out there. See the world. But God spoke to him and said, get out of this house. Go to a place I will show you. What did he say? Okay. Okay. And every time he'd speak to him, okay. Every time he'd give him command, okay. There came a time when he had to separate from from Lot and Lot's herds and herdsmen and Abraham had to separate his, all his stuff. And he told Lot, he said, you go whatever, whichever way you want to go and I'll go mine. And Lot chose and then God spoke to Abram and he said, you come out here, come out here, lift up your eyes, he said, look from the place where you are to the north, the south, the east, and the west. And all the land that you see I have given to you and to your descendants after you. What Abraham say? Okay. Just took him out his word. Nothing between God and this guy but faith. Nothing between them. No distance between them. And what a simple instruction, isn't it? Lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are. Such a simple instruction. But do you know how few people actually do that? The vast majority of this world lives their life with their eyes down and at the place they are. But what was this instruction? Lift up and look from. Not down and at, up and from. That's good advice right there. Quit looking down and at, lift up and look from. You don't like where you are right now? That's okay. That's just the place you're looking from. You don't have to live there forever. This is a place, this is where I'm looking at my future from. I can see my future from here. And God's, God's drawing this man's future in the sky. Look at these stars. Count these stars. I can't. That's how many babies you're going to have. Count the sand. I can't. That's how many your descendants will be. And what did he say? Okay, okay. Just took him at his word over and over and over. Gave him instruction. Some of it was, I imagine, hard to handle. In one conversation, 
God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, changed his wife's name from Sarai to Sarah, and told him to circumcise himself and every male born in that house. That was, that was, that, 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 that was a kind of a different day. But you know what the scripture says? On the same day. Same day. What are we talking about? Somebody who is in shape and ready to go. In shape and ready. Fit and prepared. Listen, it goes on. Skip down to verse 16. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. You know what this is right here? These are faith basics. Faith basics. Say faith basics. Anybody who you know or admire or have witnessed who, who lives at an elite level of anything, athletics, academics, business, whatever level, you, whatever arena you can think of, all that person is, somebody who's been really successful in that, all they are is a master of the basics. That's what that person is. You take some of these guys, we'll just stick with the sports stuff. Sorry, ladies, for tonight. You take some of these guys who are making millions of dollars. They're at the top of their game. Basketball, football, soccer, all over the world. All these guys are, are masters of the basics. If you were to look at their routine on and off the court, you look at their routine in practice. You know what it is? It's the same stuff five-year-old Justice started learning a year ago. But they've been doing it now for 20, 25 years for, oh, I don't know, six hours a day, eight hours a day, hour after hour after hour, dribble, 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 pass, 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 shoot, 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 shoot. These are all the basics. And the kid who just got into the sport knows that these are the things you're supposed to do, what's the difference? This guy over here has the technique. What is the technique? The mastery of these basics. Calling those things that be not as though they were. That's basic faith. But you can come to the place where you are a master of that technique. And your fight of faith will be marked by your mastery of that, by the beauty of that technique. Verse oh, 18, Abraham, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. That means when there was no reason to expect a child, still he expected a child. I like the way even the King James says that, who hoped against hope. The word hope means expectation. It means what you're looking for, what you're looking ahead towards. And there was no natural reason to expect what God told him to expect. There was no reason that to, for him to think that his body could produce it. Why? Because of the experience he's already had. He's got practically a hundred years of living under his belt with no kids. So if his future, watch this, if his future was based on his past, then there's no reason to expect anything. And that's where people are living right there. They're afraid of the future, don't want to talk about the future, 
have no vision for the future? And what did the scripture tell us? People without vision, they perish. Why would somebody choose to live without a vision? One main reason I believe is this. Vision always creates a need. You hear me? Vision always creates a need. I think somehow when we've heard the, the, the strong teaching on faith that we've heard and about God supplying our need, I think somewhere in the back of our mind we translated that to, I'm, I'm moving towards a place in my life where I never have a need again. But the problem with that is if you don't have a need, you have no vision. Because vision, especially vision from God, always creates a need bigger than you're able to reach in your pocket and meet at the moment. But I have found God loves that. I have found He has no qualms whatsoever with you walking by faith. It's His favorite part. This is His favorite part. Quick survey. Who in here would say right now in your life, in your job, your marriage, your ministry, whatever it is, your faith is absolutely stretched further than it's ever been before. You're believing bigger than you ever have. There's greater need. You're stretched unlike you ever have before. Anybody besides, look at his hands all over this. Leave your hand up. Leave your hand up. I can tell you something with confidence and absolute assurity right now. God is more pleased with you right now than he's ever been in your entire life. Because faith pleases him. Now, he's loved you the whole time, but he loves this faith stuff. This is what makes him happy. So that vision creates a need and people get a glimpse of what God's called them to. And they look at where that is and then they look back at this place and they're trying to somehow figure out how in the world am I going to get from here to there? And they're looking at the distance between the two and they're going, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. And they choose instead of pursuing it, they choose to ignore it because they're afraid of the need it created. And they think there's no way I could ever meet that need. But you aren't the one to meet the need. He said, I'll meet the need. Trust me to meet it. You just start walking towards your plan, towards my plan for you. Are you with me right now? Where are we here? Hope, expectation, looking at things ahead. Abraham didn't have any natural reason to have any expectation of a child. And still he expected one. So that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not, he said, being weak in faith. Did you notice that? Not being what? Weak. So what are we talking about here? This is somebody who is fit. This is somebody who's in shape. Not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. So you know right there, that's what weak faith does. That's what weak faith does. Now, faith is present, so you know what? He heard a word. He's got a word from God. You're the father of many nations. That's the word. But had his faith been weak, he would have said, I hear you, but... And then start looking at everything around him. Mm-hmm. Looking at, not from, at. He would, have, he would have let down his eyes and looked at the condition of his body. At 
the condition of his wife's body at past experience and how they failed at this over and over and over and over again. How they tried like so many people month after month after month after month to conceive a child and, and just finally said, okay, this is just not going to happen. And he's got who knows how many decades of that as his experience now. And weak faith would have said, I hear you, but what about all this? But he wasn't weak in faith, was he? He didn't consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was what? He was what? Strengthened. He wasn't weak. He was strengthened. He wasn't weak in his faith. He was strong in his faith. He was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Look at this out of the Message Bible. Verse 19. Abraham, this is the Message Bible, Abraham didn't focus on his own impotence and say, it's hopeless. This hundred-year-old body could never father a child. Nor did he survey Sarah's decades of infertility and give up. Next verse. He didn't tiptoe around God's promise, asking cautiously skeptical questions. What'd he do? He plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God. Look at what it says. Keep going. Sure that God would make good on what he said. Verse 22. That's why it is said Abraham was declared fit before God. That's how he translates the word righteous. Fit. I can use you, God said. You're useful to me. I can do something with you. He was declared fit before God by trusting God to set him right. Was he weak? Was his faith weak? What was it? Strong. Series of questions here. Help me out with this. What's better, stronger or weaker? Okay, if the answer is stronger, you can't say it like that. You have to say it like, what's better, stronger or weaker? Stronger. Stronger is better, right? What's better, physically stronger or physically weaker? What's better? Stronger. In your body, is it better to be strong or weak? It's better to be strong. What about uh, in your mind? Is it better to be mentally weak or mentally strong? What about, what about your immune system? What do you want there? What do you want going on in there? You want something that's weak or something that's strong? What's better? Strong, strong is better than weak. Um, what about financially? Now, don't answer too quickly here. Because God may want you strong in all those other areas. See how silly that is? What's better, to be financially weaker or financially stronger? Stronger is better. Stronger is better in everything in life. Stronger is better. Stronger in your body. Stronger in your mind. Stronger in your spirit. Stronger financially. Stronger relationally. Even stronger coffee is better. Everything, everything is better stronger. I would say with the exception of certain smells, everything is better 
stronger? Come on, what's better, weaker or stronger's better? And when you're strong, you're fit. You're in shape. Now, I joked a little bit ago about working out, but the truth is, I, I, about a year ago, I really, I got after it a little more. I've always been like this kind of skinny, scrawny guy, and I kind of just got to the point where I was like, I'm done being weak. I'm done with, with my family telling me, and this is what they grew up telling me, you've got a great build for golf. <laughs> That's sad, man. That's sad. You've got a great build for golf. That's a nice way of saying, dear God, do not play football. Whatever you do, you are going to get squashed. And so really about a year and a half ago, I just kind of got done. I'm done being weak. I'm done feeling weak. Man, I got after it. I was working out hard. And uh, if I were to bring my little guy, Justice, in here, who's six years old, stand him right next to me, there's a big difference between where he is and, and where I am. But the fact is, he's got all the same muscles I've got. And I've got all the same muscles he's got. The difference is a couple of things. Number one, time. Just time. Growing, developing. Or two, I've used mine in a different way that he has. Now, several weeks ago, Sarah and I were in an airport in Vancouver, Canada and we were walking through and we were up on a high level and I looked out over this glass and I saw this guy down on this lower level massive massive dude just muscles everywhere coming out of everything and evidently he knew it tank top and short shorts I'm like okay dude we get it you're big seriously at an airport put something on man come on for the rest of us. But if you stand him next to me, we got all the same muscles. But his have been used in a different way. Right? See, the disciples said to Jesus, increase our faith. And he's like, no. You've got faith. Use it. See, they were asking for something they thought they didn't have. Maybe you feel weak in it. Maybe it feels like your faith's weak. But the first thing you've got to come to is done being weak. You've got to come to the place where you'd say to yourself, to your husband, to your wife, we're done with this. I'm done being weak in my faith. I'm done being weak in my mind. I'm done being weak physically. I'm done being weak in my immune system. I'm done letting stuff just walk all over me. From this day forward, I am getting Stronger. Why? Because stronger is better. Stronger is better. And there is a new fire that's been lit under me. In these last few months, I'm ready. I want to be stronger in every area of my life. I got a mandate, fit by 40. Fit by 40. Now, if he was talking to me about my physical condition, I mean, we can get that taken care of in, you know, six to nine months or something like that. But he's given me these next three years, and he's not just talking about this out here. That might be part of it. But his change is coming from the inside out. Jeremy, I need you stronger in your faith. I need you stronger in the Word. Stronger in prayer. Stronger in your walk with me. Stronger in your authority. Stronger in revelation. Stronger in your preaching. Stronger in 
your example in front of your children. Stronger in your marriage. Stronger in your ministry. Because stronger is better. And I know it's coming. Something's coming. Something's coming. And I've got these next few days, weeks, months, years to get ready for it. Because when it gets here, I want to be able to say, I'm ready. I'm ready. You can use me. You can use me. Abraham, what did God say to him? I can use you. I can use you. Let's begin to close this psalm. Go there with me. To the book of Psalms. Look in a couple of places. Chapter 31. And then we'll turn the page right over to chapter 27. Is this helping anyone at all? You have to say yes. Don't you like it when preachers ask these questions? Can you take a little more? You've heard that one from here, I think. Every time there's a guy in the crowd, yeah, go on, preach, woo! For every one of those guys, there's six going, oh my gosh. But when it's Brother Keith, I'm the guy going, come on, keep going. I just felt like I need to say that. Chapter 31. Look at verse 24. The psalmist writing and he said, be of good courage and he will what? Strengthen your heart. All you who hope in the Lord. Be of good courage and he will, say it again, strengthen your heart. Turn over a couple pages or back a couple pages to chapter 27. Notice what he said in verse 13. I would have lost heart. Other translations say, I would have fainted. My heart would have quit. I would have given up. I would have thrown in the towel. I'll say it to you like this. I would have run out of endurance. Endurance is a huge indicator and sign of fitness. You ever been out of the gym for, I don't know, a couple of kids gone by, a few years, and then you decide, I'm getting back in there. And you go, and day one, you work out, you work stuff you forgot you had. And the next day, you're feeling it. And the day after that, you're really feeling it. And you worked out for what, 20 minutes? <laughs> I know that at one point, this has been several years ago, I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta do something, I gotta work out. And Sarah had these DVDs uh, of this lady who would do these workouts. And she, it was her and this two other ladies with her. So I, I put the DVD on and, and I'm working out. And this, it's not very long to begin with, but like 10 or 12 minutes into it, she's like, come on ladies, you can do it. And I'm like, no, I can't. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't. What's the problem? Mike's shaking his head at me. I told you I'd be transparent tonight. What's the problem? No endurance. When you've been out of that for a while and you're getting back into it, your endurance is small. Your endurance is short. But the more your fitness grows, the more your endurance grows. Well, the more spiritually fit you are, the more spiritual endurance you have. Strength and endurance go together. I would have lost heart. I would have run out of endurance. I would have quit. Unless, unless 
I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Most people quit if they don't see it. But he said, it's not seeing it that's sustaining me. It's me believing to see it. It's my expectation of it. I do this because that's what that word means. It means outstretched neck, red hot, earnest expectation. I'm expecting something. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And it's my believing that that's sustaining me all the way through it. He says, wait on the Lord. That's what that word wait means. It's not, it's not arms folded, foot tapping, idly, passively. Wait. Well, I'm just waiting on God. No, you're not. That's not what that word means. Wait on him. Expect in him. We read there in chapter 31. He said, those who hope in the Lord means the exact same thing. Hope in the Lord. Wait on Him. Notice this. Be of good courage. That's what He just said a moment ago. And He will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I like these two verses because the psalmist here, David, he gives the example of what's happened in his life and the instruction that came out of that. This is what happened for me. That's why I'm telling you. You see that? I would have lost heart. What would have become of me if I hadn't trusted, if I hadn't believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? So I'm telling you, you wait on Him. You expect to see it. Be of good courage and He will strengthen your heart. Of all the things that we've identified tonight, all the arenas in which stronger is better, this is the most important. This one far outweighs any of them. To be strong in your heart. I know what it's like to be weak physically and want to be stronger. Maybe made weak through even sickness and desiring to be stronger. I know what it's like to be weak financially, than, weaker than you want to be, and the, the desire to be stronger. I know that. You know that. We've all experienced that. And we get stirred up and we get excited when we find out how to be stronger in those areas. But I'm telling you, more than any of those, this is what you need. Above any of the others, you need a strong heart. And all the others, good. And you do need it all, but not before this. He'll strengthen your heart. Why do you need a strong heart? Because a strong heart will last longer than a weaker one. Have you noticed that most of the time you don't go from physically weak to physically strong the next day? Have you noticed even in dealing with symptoms of sickness in your body that that outside of a miraculous moment and that happens and continues to happen and we're believing for it to happen. But, but you know as well as I do that most of the time there's a work going on in you and you're getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger over time until all of that is flushed out. Have you noticed that? As much as you would want to be instantly stronger, it doesn't always happen that way. Have you noticed that it's not always overnight that you go from financially weaker to financially stronger? Yes. Proverbs warns about that. Even folks that inherit large sums of money or win large sums of money, just because they got a lot of money doesn't mean they're financially stronger. 
it will probably just expose whatever weakness they have. So these things, they, they take time and oftentimes more time than you want them to take. So what is it that's going to get you from where you are, maybe weak or weakened, to where you want to be strong and strengthened? How are you going to get from here to there? What if it takes a long time? Ask Abraham. How did he get from not having a child to hearing the promise of God and what was it, a decade or more later, finally experiencing it? What's going to get you from where you are to where you want to be? It's going to be a strong heart. It's going to be a strong heart. Because there are going to be times that you're going to feel like giving up, feel like giving in. Feel like you have exhausted all your strength, all your energy, everything you've got physically, everything you've got financially, everything you've got mentally, and you've poured it out and you've just left it all on the court, as they say. Left it all on the field, didn't hold anything back. Well, what's going to keep you in the game? Heart. Heart is what's going to keep you in the game. You ask any good coach, any self-respecting coach, and you ask him, what would you rather have, talent or heart? He'll say, give me heart every time. Every time. What would you rather have, strong physically or strong in the heart? Give me somebody who's got a strong heart. I can do something with that. Did you hear that? I can do something with it. It's useful to me. How many times have you heard these stories about teams making it all the way through tournaments, teams that were littler than everybody else, teams that were from some backwoods school that nobody ever heard of, and they showed up and people laughed at them. These make great movies. And, and they go all the way through and they win one, and then they win another, and then they win another, and they wind up at the big game against the big guys, and what got them there? Heart. Every single time. And that's what's going to get you there. That's what's going to, in this fight that you and I are in, this is what makes you fit. This is what makes you strong. You may not be strong physically. You may not be some towering giant, but it's heart that's going to keep you on your feet round after round after round. And round one is over and two and three and four and five. And it's heart that's going to keep you in this thing. Round 10, round 11, round 12. And this whole time, what are you doing? Technique, technique. Technique, technique. It's growing. You're getting stronger. You're getting stronger. Every step of obedience, you're getting stronger. Every time you, every time you say, okay, Lord, every time you take him at his word, you're getting stronger. You're getting stronger. You're getting stronger. In a minute, you're about to land a blow that's going to send your enemy running out of this ring. That's what's about to happen if, if you don't lose heart. If you won't quit. I'll tell you this story and I'll be done. Whoa, I preached a long time. I'm, I've experienced this probably more in the last month than I ever have in my entire life. I got to give you a little backstory on this. When I was 18 years old, I remember I was hanging out with my grandfather, Brother Copeland. I think most of you probably know my grandparents. And uh, he and I were hanging out one night. I was 18 years old. We went for a drive. We pulled back into the house, and I'll never forget sitting in the driveway of his house. And he said, Jeremy, I've asked you a question. How would you like to learn to fly? I'll put you through pilot, uh, flight training, pilot school if you'd like to. Now, 
I wasn't on the inside really excited about it. That was not something I ever really saw myself doing. I, honestly, I was, I was not. I got a lot of things from that side of the family, but like the hunting, fishing, outdoors, flying airplanes, the great adventures. Of, again, me and my dad, where are we? We're at the piano. <laughs> and I'm not knocking that. I loved every minute of that. So when Papa was like, how would you like to learn to fly? Honestly, I felt afraid because I didn't really think I had the mind for that. But um, one thing, and, and this is just be a word of advice to you, if Brother Copeland asks you <laughs> if you want to do something, don't say, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay? So when he said, Jeremy, how, how would you like to learn to fly? I was like, yay! <laughs> that sounds great! <laughs> and so... He set it up, and uh, I enrolled in flight training. They're not too far from my house. You know what? Right away, I was not getting it. Just basic flight concepts just seemed to elude me, and I just I couldn't make sense of it. And I was with this trainer who basically, his, his whole thing, he was just there getting hours. He was just trying to get guys in and out of this thing. And I'm like, I'm not getting this, I'm not getting this. And he's taking me up flying and we're, we're trying to get it. Well, then it comes time, about oh, 15, 20 hours into your training, it comes time for your first solo. You know what solo means? It means the dude gets out of the airplane, <laughs> right? And now you're flying an airplane by yourself. So we flew out to KCM, you know, they have a, there's a runway right there on the property. And we land there, this guy gets out, big doogie, gets out of the airplane. And I'm supposed to go take off, come around, do two touch and goes, and then a full stop landing. Well, I take off, I'm coming around, and I don't know. The first one, I was like, this doesn't even look right. I, I, I didn't even go down. I did not even come down to the earth. I was still up, and I'm going back around again. I'm like, all right, this next time around, I'm going to have to get down to the ground at some point. So I start coming down. I kid you not, it looked, you've been in the airplane, right? You know when the pilot touches down, you know it's a good landing because all you hear is what? Right? right? That's what you want to hear. As a pilot, you want the... That's what you want. Just those wheels kissing the ground, right? Can you try it with me? There you go. Mine, however, looked like God had thrown a basketball out of the heavens, and I slammed this airplane down on the ground, bounced up, bounced down. I thought, Mike, I thought maybe that counts as all the touching goes right there. It was horrible. It was horrible. And I got to do this two more times. So I come around again. Second one, really not much better at all. Third one, on, on the third one, I look out the airplane, there's a fire truck pulling up <laughs> on, onto the tarmac. And I thought, okay, either somebody saw the first landing or somebody in my family who's out there watching preemptively called a fire truck. Maybe like, he should be playing golf. I don't know. But I'm watching this fire truck. I'm like, I'm not on fire. Give me some credit here. Come down, land. It's just ugly ugly the whole thing but I stay with it and after pattern solos then it's time to start learning how to cross-country solo so now you actually have to leave the airport 
But it's not just about going up and coming down. You I mean you've got to navigate. You've got to figure for wins and and look on your sectional chart and make sure you're in the right place. And so for my first few cross-country solos, I was taken off out of this airport there in Fort Worth that was right on Highway 287. And I found another airport that was about, I don't know, 30 miles away also on Highway 287. So what I would do is take off and basically drive <laughs> to this airport. Because I have no confidence whatsoever in my flight planning abilities. I'm not confident at all. And so finally one day I'm like, you know what? I can't just fly to this one airport for my entire life. I'm gonna have to do this and be legit. So I planned a for real legitimate cross country kid you not, 30 minutes into this flight, I am so lost. And if you've never been lost while flying an airplane, you've never sweat. That was sweat. It's like, what are you going to do, pull over? You know what I mean? <laughs> Excuse me, I don't know. Can you tell me how to get back on the highway? <laughs> you know? And by the grace of God Almighty and some help from air traffic control, I made it back to home base. I didn't even go to the other airports I was supposed to go to. I landed, I put that airplane away, and I sped walked through the <laughs> lobby there, the flight school. My instructor was like, hey, how was your flight? Fine, gotta go, bye. <laughs> Never said anything to anybody about it. So, so scared me. And you know, I quit shortly after that. I didn't wanna go back, I didn't wanna do it anymore. About a year or so later, a couple of years maybe, Decided, I, I need to pick this thing back up. Didn't want to do it. Felt somehow obligated. Felt pressure. I, I got to do this. So I went back to school. Went through all the training again. Still not any better. This time I had an instructor, a uh, little guy from India. And man, it's so loud in those little airplanes. He was hard to understand to begin with, but when you add all that noise and he starts yelling at you, and he's like, no, no, which way are you entering the airport? What, what, what pattern altitude do we have? I'm like, I, I don't know, I don't know. Use some common sense. He would, I don't, driving is common to me, man. I don't know what you're, he's yelling at me in this Indian accent, and I can't, and I can't understand. So somehow I managed to get through that. I got my private pilot's license. I don't know how, but I did. And I kept on with my training a little bit, but you know, it was like that. It was one just bad experience after another, after another. One time I flew out of Fort Worth and I had to go on this long cross country to Little Rock, Arkansas. And man, I just made some huge mistakes. I was taken off out of there and busted a whole short line. And uh, um, I took off and there was a lot of there's a lot of confusion on the radio, but I, I, I misunderstood a clearance, and they come on, and they're yelling at me. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I hate this. I don't want to be doing this. And it, I had three hours to fly home, just kicking myself, thinking, you're not cut out for this. You can preach like your grandfather if you want to, but you're not going to be able to fly like him. And just kick myself over and over and over. So I, I quit again. And you fast forward to these last few years, Sarah and I launched into this ministry a few years ago, and man, God's been faithful, and there was always something about airplanes in it. We were a month, or maybe a couple of months into our ministry, 
when a man, a partner of ours, who had been letting us use his airplane, called and said, I want to give you that airplane. Two, three-month-old ministry. We were given a Cessna 421. Great airplane. Man, we flew that airplane everywhere. Well, I didn't. But <laughs> we rode. Another guy flew everywhere. Uh, shortly after that, another minister called and said, I want to sow a Citation 500 into your ministry. And we're stepping up now, which enabled us to sow that first airplane. A couple of years after that, we felt like the Lord told us to sow that jet. I'm telling you, if you've never given away an airplane, you've got to try it, man. It is awesome. It's so much fun. But since that time, we've been back in the commercial airline system, which we know the Lord had called us out of, and He'd given us the equipment to stay out of it, but we were back in it and not really up on my faith. You know, God had just sort of given them to us before. I guess that's what's going to happen again. All the while, he's talking to me about, get back into flying. You need to go back. You need to go back. You need to go back. And I'm just pretending I don't hear that. Have you noticed that doesn't work with God? <laughs> Have you noticed there's no statute of limitations on his commands? <laughs> that if you disobey long enough then eventually he'd be like, okay, well, that's fine. It just doesn't work. And he's talking to me about it, and he's talking to me about it, and, and I'm just telling myself, you know, it's excuses. I'm too busy. We've got little kids, and it takes so much time. And really, all the while, I'm thinking, I was so bad at this before. What business do I have getting back into it again? And that got all the way up to this summer. And Sarah and I were here in Branson attending the marriage meeting, we were home uh, there at her mom and dad's house one morning, and we were just talking to each other about aviation and how the Lord had made provision for this before and asking each other, where is it now? We're asking some of the same questions you asked. Where is it now? And she looks at me, and she's like, um, do you think this has anything to do with you know, God telling you to fly? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> oh. You know, I don't want it to, but yeah, it does. And so we came into agreement that day, made the decision, we're going to get back in this, we're going to make the investment, and we're going to prioritize him and his instruction. You know, it was that same week that a man came to me, actually a man who I know from home, good friend of our family. He was up here that week, and he came and he said, Jeremy, you just do with this what you, should, what you need to, but I think the Lord wants you to fly again. And this guy is a gold seal instructor thousands of hours instructing, phenomenal instructor, and he said, if you will take me up on it, I'll train you. No charge. So the Lord was talking, and I did not want to do this. I fought it, and I fought it, and I fought it, and finally one day I said to Sarah, you know why I don't want to do this? She said, why? I said, I'm afraid. And I said it just like that. I'm afraid to do it. You know what that was? The first honest moment of the whole conversation. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of being the guy in the left seat. I'm afraid of being up there with my family in the back. I'm afraid of making the mistakes that I made before. What's happening? I'm letting my past shape my expectation. But what did he say? What did the psalmist say? If you'll expect then you'll strengthen your heart. But what did Jesus say? He said men's hearts are failing. Why? Fear and the expectation of things to come. 
So you got a strong heart and you got a weak heart. One will carry you through, one will quit on you. One's rooted in faith and yields an expectation called hope. One's rooted in fear and yields an expectation called dread and worry. And when I finally just acknowledged, I'm afraid. I've been afraid to do it and I don't want to be afraid anymore. So here's what I'm going to do. More than I'm afraid to do this, more than that feeling, I want to be obedient. I want to do what he's telling me to do. So Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I called that man. I said, let's go fly. And you know what happened? Without even realizing it, remember what he said, be of good courage. What comes after that? He'll strengthen your heart. It required a step of courage. Strength comes, but only after courage is taken. I preached for an hour and a half to say that to you right there tonight. The strength will come, but not until after the courage is taken. So I called him and I said, all right, I'm ready. Let's go do it. And we, we met one day before we went to fly. I said, why are you doing this? And I said, honestly, I don't know. Obedience, that's all I know. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be the guy. But more than that, I want to be obedient. He said, okay, I can buy that. And we went out and flew, and then we flew some more, and then we kept flying, and we kept flying, and all last month, we just went and flew, and flew, and flew, and from the first one, my heart started beating, and I looked up, I'm like, I'm enjoying this. Something's going on in me. I'm enjoying what's going on right now. And I get home and I'm excited about flying. And I'm talking to Sarah about flying. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. That's great. But I'm excited about it. And it's stirring in my heart. And I'm eat, sleeping, breathing, flying, you know. And I'm just so stirred up about it. And one day we went out and flew together. And he's a faith guy. So I told him, I told him hey, man, I want to tell you something. He said, what? I said, I'm an excellent pilot. He said, I believe that. I believe that. And we're flying. We flew out to KCM. He's like, hey, why don't you land right here? Uh, I got to run into the hangar real quick. Like, okay, fine. We, we pull up to the hangar. He's like, well, I got to run in, but you got to go do some solos. <laughs> My first solos in 15 years. And I said, you jerk. <laughs> <laughs> but I dropped him off, braiding tongues from there to the <laughs> threshold. And you know what? The anointing to do this thing came all over me. I got so stirred up about it. Every time I tell this, I'll start to cry because it's perhaps one of the most pronounced demonstrations in my entire life of taking a step of courage and watching him strengthen my heart. I didn't have the heart to do it, but he gave it to me. And I know you want that physical miracle. I know you want that financial miracle. I know you want that thing to happen quickly overnight. And it doesn't always happen. But what can happen in an instant is your heart can get stronger now. Your heart can get stronger now. It doesn't take any time. I'm telling you, it doesn't take any time at all. All it requires is like Abraham, step. Courage, step. And here comes the strength. Here comes the strength to do what he gave you to do. Here comes the strength to fulfill the assignment. And all I can tell you is that God has gone to work in me both to will and to do. 
his good pleasure. And I took off that day and I came around first landing. You know what it sounded like? <laughs> Second one. Third one. Oh, it was beautiful, man. It was beautiful. And I'm, I'm, there's nobody to share it with, you know, and that's great too. And, and it's just growing in me and growing in And I know it has everything to do with whatever airplane the Lord's bringing in this, this ministry. That's, that's on Him. I'm doing what He told me to do. And He's strengthening my heart. I'm getting stronger. Are you getting stronger? Stand up on your feet. Woo, you got a long one tonight. <laughs> thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. What did he say to Joshua? First thing he said was, Moses is dead. Yeah. That's comforting. But then what did he say? Be strong. Be courageous. I'm with you. Be strong. Be courageous. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Courage comes from knowing you're not alone. That's where the courage comes from. And He will strengthen your heart. And when God starts throwing around this little word, be, watch out. Duck. Stuff changes. You remember early on when He was like, light, be? What happened? Light was. So I'm going to do the same thing by the word of the Lord for you and in you tonight that He did in Joshua that day. And I say to you, strength, be. Courage, be. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. He gives power to the weak. He increases strength to them that have no might. He gives power to the faint. You will run and you won't grow weary. You will walk and you will not faint. All those who hope and wait on the Lord. Strength be. Anybody else interested in this? Say, I'm fit. And I'm ready. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray over this congregation tonight. Thank you, Lord, for this awesome opportunity to share your word and to get in these things together. And I speak into their lives now strength and courage. You take your step. You take that step of faith and watch as the Lord strengthens your heart, enabling you to do what you couldn't do. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Father, we receive your strength not only in our lives individually, but in this church, this family, this body. We thank you for it. We thank you for the good things that are just ahead. And with outstretched neck, we hope and anticipate and expect. And we refuse to allow our past to dictate and shape our expectation of the future. Our experience will not determine our expectation. Say it out loud. My experience, my experience does, not does not determine my expectation. My expectation. If God said I can have it, I can have it. If He said I can do it, I can do it. If He said I could be it, I can be it. I will be it. And by His grace, I will, I will overcome in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.